Hi, and thank you for listening to the Invest Investor podcast. If this is your first podcast, then welcome and enjoy. This podcast is a year-end special as we look back on some of the interesting and insightful stories we've heard from over the last 12 months. It was a hard task for our team to reduce 32 podcasts into one special recording. We truly hope you enjoy the stories we've chosen and that you learn from the ups and downs of all our inspiring podcastees. In our first snippet, we have Priya Lakhani OBE, who is a founder of Century Tech, a leading AI company that is transforming how education is being delivered. In this clip, she talks about her previous startup, Masala Masala, trying to sell her ethnic source outside Victoria Station, parking on double yellow lines and trying to shift 74 cases of jars of sauce out the back of a van during rush hour. The funny thing is, is that, and every entrepreneur will feel this, you will have this moment, I had it a century with my second venture. You don't remember the numbers with the first big waitress deal. What I do remember is my first deal and my first check. Right. I mean, you would have had well, that, right? Well, so, can, yeah, I have. Yeah. You remember yeah, it, right? Just correlated yeah, the check I, yeah, yeah, to the same, volume. Yeah. Yes. yeah, no, no, I don't remember that. I remember <laughs> my first check and what I will tap in that, I'll tell you there, it was Harvey Nichols. It was £108. <laughs> it was a check. It wasn't a transfer or anything. And I got it in the post. And it was the best £108 I'd ever, <laughs> ever seen in my life. And it was for just a handful of cases. But the really, really funny thing about that was that big manufacturers don't make a handful of cases. So they made a pallet. Right, and a pallet. <laughs> so, somewhere. Yeah, no, because it's fresh. But um, a pallet is 80 cases, and Harvey Nichols were only buying six cases. So I had, you know, a lot of cases to get rid of. 74 cases in the back of a van. So I'd literally gone within weeks from wearing a three-piece suit as a barrister to wearing a hoodie and jogging bottoms, driving a van. And I went to Victoria's tube station, and I, I was parked on the double red route. I know this is public, but hopefully there is some sort of, you know, statute of limitations on that, <laughs> as I admit that. But I parked on the double red route. I was lifting these 74 cases out of the back of my van outside the front of Victoria Station during rush hour. And I was shouting, available in Waitrose in six weeks. So I thought it would be a good marketing effort. And, and actually, I do know that people wrote to me and said, you said it's available in Waitrose. It's not. And then I had to remind them it was in a few weeks time. Did you give them away? I was giving them away for free. Yeah. Then go and taste it at home. Oh, yeah. And, you know, feedback on Facebook mm. and use the social media that was available that was yeah. popular at the time. Um, and tell your friends about it. And so I was using it as a marketing tactic to launch in Waitrose because people really like free stuff, particularly stuff that they can take home that's tangible. Mm. And what was really interesting was that I was being yelled at because I couldn't open the boxes you know, quick Fast enough. enough yes. So people were getting their keys out and they were keying the boxes and taking them out saying, give me more and I want that one. And, and then this homeless guy took complete pity on me and started helping me. And I offered him the pots of sauce at the end of it, you know, a couple of pots, but he said, I've not got a kitchen. So I went and bought him a sandwich from pret manger and gave it to him. And then some parking attendants came up and they said, you're parked on the red route. So I ran to them and I said, please don't give me a ticket. Look, I'm in trouble, right? People are yelling at me. They're keying the boxes. A homeless person's taking pity on me. And so I said, look, why don't you take a case for home? Because these guys, they were African. And I said, they're, they're ethnic. It's the first ever ethnic fresh sauce. And he said, okay. So they took the case each. And they took them home. They didn't give me a ticket. And the next thing I know is four other parking attendants, right? Because they've got to tell their <laughs> friends. And so I took four cases away and I gave them and they didn't give me a ticket. But, you know, it was really interesting how my first check was actually so much more memorable because I went home and I was exhausted that day and I had cuts all over my hands. It was my first experience. It's very relevant, I think, to all business, not just FMCG, but also in software, that it is blood, sweat and tears, mm, literally, mm. running a business. It has its peaks, but it also definitely has its very difficult times. And, and while that was a really, there was a rush 
in that. And I can talk about it anecdotally and it's, it's really good fun talking about it. But it was really exhausting and actually quite a scary proposition when you've got 74 cases you're lifting to sort of two by two yeah. at the time. By myself, people yelling at you, parking attendants, you know, it's a great story. And, and you know, I don't regret it and I would do it again. Neil Garner is a tenacious serial entrepreneur who has been the founder and CEO of Proxama, now known as Location Sciences, which is a business that deals with mobile wallet and NFC. Neil helped the company gain a listing on the London AIM stock exchange. He's also the founder and current CEO of another NFC company called Things. In this podcast, we hear his views of equity crowdfunding and the lessons he has learned using this method of fundraising. Now, you've chose Crowdcube, which is primarily a B2C market generally, yes. because people like to use the people investing as champions of yeah. brands. Well, you're not a B, you're a B2B business. We're aren't a B2B you? business, but I think there's quite a few B2B businesses on there. So, you know, we did look at Cedars and Syndicate Room and, and Crowdcube, but again, a lesson learned naively is if you can do it right, you can raise your SEIS money and get that to count towards yes. your next oh, investment. Really? Okay, so you can go into your crowdfund with you know, £150,000 you've already raised. Yes. And it's on your ticker from day one. Okay. But the, the lesson learned is if you issue share certificates to those investments, that invalidates it. Right. And I think depending on the crowdfunding network, they've got different criteria okay. about how much you need to have raised beforehand. I think the thing I found is actually, although it's a crowdfunding platform, you've really probably got to have raised half your money before you go, go oh, live. Or more sometimes. In yeah. fact, on that basis, I think it's open for another couple of weeks from the date from today, or a bit less than that. Yeah. And it said 41% last night. Yes, it's going to change quite quickly. Again, another lesson is there's a plateau of despair in there <laughs> as well, which is you, you get your initial investors, yes. you then get your mad fools who just pile in because yes. they, it looks great. And then you get the people who download lots of documents, information, and sit there waiting. So I think most businesses seem to get a plateau period where you think, oh my God, it's okay. like tumbleweed. Yes. But then that's when you're actually getting investors who are interested, but want to find a little bit more and meet up and talk and share documentation. Uh, yeah, I noticed the forum has got some quite sophisticated questions on it, in fact, which you've answered. Yes. Fingers crossed, touch wood, we've now got a number of investors that are bigger ones that are putting money in. Yes. And then once you get over 50 60%, that seems to be when it ticks up again and everybody else is happy to kind of jump in and all being well as it seems to go is that then helps to get overfunded. So yeah. it's, I think it's just getting your thresholds right. So that'll give you a low numbers of hundreds of thousands. What are you going to do with that money? Fortunately, it's all for marketing and sales. So unlike quite a few businesses, we've actually built everything we need and our solutions deliberately sector agnostic so we can kind of apply it to different sorts of sectors. Right. So the work really is to kind of do the work to analyse which subsectors do we think we can own or the low-hanging fruit to generate the revenue, and then we can push those out there. So it's really kind of, you know, sales, marketing, bit of analysis on which markets to kind of move into and also deepen the partnership relationships we've got. So, Neil, this is really fascinating. This is two journeys. What tips have you got for entrepreneurs? First tip, again, lesson learned, is the first part of my journey. It was me. And I think many entrepreneurs are probably quite self-sufficient, jack-of-all-trades, masters of none. But the second part of my journey, and the third part, I guess, with the new business, is actually build a team and a support network, is that the, the more open you are to working with others and build the best possible support network around you, that's definitely the most important tip. Sharon Dagan is an admirable entrepreneur who successfully sold her mobile communications company, Ariso. More recently, she has transitioned into an investor, both as an angel and a venture capitalist. 
In her two-part podcast snippet, she recounts some war stories, including showing the courage required of a founder of asking her husband to step down as CTO so that she could recruit a talented scientist from NASA. She also talks about one of the test phases of her product. She and her team managed to blow up the IT in San Francisco. Her journey as an entrepreneur is one of the most exciting and honest journeys we have heard. I knew that I had to build a completely different product. The engineering staff I had just didn't have the experience. So my husband was the CTO at the time. So I asked him to step down from the CTO position. So he became chief science officer and actually hired in a CTO. A really fantastic guy, very, very bright, literally a, a, a rocket scientist. He used to work for NASA and, and he was working for Bell Labs. I had no idea to this day how I managed to convince this guy to leave his amazing job and come and join this tiddly little and company. And to move from America to here, I guess, Well, he actually UK. stayed in, in oh, New oh, Jersey, so he was remote, but I, yeah. he was so good that I didn't care, frankly, where he sat. So I managed to bring him on board as CTO and also I brought in a chief architect who had built big systems for billing system and, and, and also performance management type of things because I knew I had, uh, I had a completely different problem to solve. So I, I started augmenting and changing the, the technical team in order to build what we needed to build. So it was, you know, it was a minimum viable product sort of level. And, and we were doing something massive because no one had ever tried this before to gather every single signaling message that was going from a mobile handset to a base station and vice versa. So we were handling like billions of data records. And with that comes some interesting challenges, which meant that my chief architect was literally chained to every installation that we had to make. To tweak it? Well, yeah. I mean, literally on premise, we were fixing bugs, obviously not telling the customer we're doing that. But, you know, it was because we didn't have a network to test it with. That's, no, that's, that's because they couldn't exactly. You had to test it on a live network, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was some uh, midnight hairy moments, you know. Uh, I was out there, sort of testing with the guys, and you know they were fixing bugs. Anyway, we managed to kind of do this without the customer really knowing it. I call it human shield. Mm. At the beginning, our product had to go with sort of number of people around it to stop the customer. Which is probably true of many software systems, isn't it? Where Correct. You, yeah. But when you're playing with someone's live network, it's, it's a bit scary. Particularly if you can bring it down, you can bring a cell down, I suspect. Exactly. Or a cell or a city almost. Yeah, well, we did, we did blow up the IT in San Francisco. Because <laughs> 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 our processing power is just using up so much electricity. Of their system, yeah, yeah, their server. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not, not the network. Yeah, we probably shouldn't have plugged it into where the kettle was. <laughs> anyway, uh, we, we did what we had to do, but it just went viral. I mean, we deployed in Los Angeles, um, in AT&T, Los Angeles market, and then they loved it. We went to Dallas, we went to San Francisco, literally within like six or seven months, all of the different big cities. And, and as you can imagine, San Francisco itself is like a country in, the, in Europe, right? So it's, it's so big. From being students who won a £25,000 university award to becoming the founders of a multi-million pound turnover company called Plumis, William McCant and Yusuf Mohammed reflect on their business journey so far. Interestingly, they state that they raised small funding rounds to start with, as they would not want to invest in themselves either. 
Pivoting and bootstrapping is the key formula for these founders, including a large stint of not paying themselves and working out of a boat in central London. You ran out of cash quite soon, didn't you? That cash, the cash we put in was too little. You asked for too little, we gave you too little. What happens when you ran out of cash? Well, I think the first point is that we asked for too little because I'm not sure we would convince anybody to take more for a start. So we got the amount that we were able to get and tried to do the best with what we had. So you could argue that even today we're highly bootstrapped into trying to get to where we want to. But we've learned that probably that was the only way forward, especially in the industry that we are. So slow moving, you don't have quick adoption of new products. The other day we were having a meeting with an established manufacturer of alarms and their business development manager was telling us that one of their products has been launched 10 years ago and uh, customers were telling him that this is a new product. This is a new (laughs) product barely in the market and, and he got back to them and said, this product is 10 years in the market and you're telling me it's a new product. We have our latest launch launch product is a year old and we're already iterating to its next version of it. And this is how the difference of a startup speed with the, what an industry is. So we have had to adapt ourselves to this much slower and much higher barrier to entries of having to fire test to have third party scrutiny into everything you do with your product. Yeah. And so for a few months you didn't pay yourselves and then we put some more money in and then yes. what happened then? So for many months, we didn't pay ourselves. <laughs> yeah, uh, We did all sorts of cost containment strategies of our own so that we could survive like that. Yeah, Even I moved to a place where I would be fully subsidized. Yusuf moved to his parents' house where he would be fully subsidized. So uh, we had to do some very bizarre strategies to be able to keep the business and keep investing our time in the business because what, it's what it needed. Yeah, And then you went back and we put some more money in because you got a slightly better story, but that ran out as well, didn't it? Yes, so where we saw a new, and I guess that was our real first pivot that we did, was when we had no or very little sales from the consumer side or from the housing association side, and we had the consumer knocking on our door saying, I'm refurbishing my home, I have building control telling me that I have to put a sprinkler, and I'm wondering whether I can put your tap spray system in my kitchen and in my living room. And we're like, how on earth are we going to put, like, we'll have to put a sink in the middle of his living room. <laughs> we didn't even know what building control was. In fact, that's where it's useful to explain where my experience from the fire industry was proved to be completely useless. Because the experience that I had was from a commercial, industrial side of things, where it's all in insurance-driven. It's all reducing premiums because you're reducing the risk of a claim for your insurer. And we've learned that on the residential side, it's completely different. It's all building codes, building regulations driven. And it means that it's the, the drivers are completely different. The solution is completely different. So all the experience I had was completely useless. I didn't know what building control was. But we went to the local building control office and just learned what exactly they did and how our product could fit. And they said, yes, indeed, your product could be used for this very niche specific loft conversion application, which is written into the building regulations in the UK, into the guidance of the building regulations into the UK. And that's really what the business started, like really growing organically from. Was from that this one. this was six years ago now, I think, isn't it? 2011, yeah, probably that's was right. the first install. So that's then product, the route to market is through installers, not directly to consumer. So we've got a business now that's starting to grow, starting to get some market pull, got a patent being granted, some defensibility. What next? How did you scale the business? 
So, I mean, once we had identified this niche that we would be able to help people get their homes signed off and enable them to have sort of more open plan, more desirable layouts, we just tried to educate the market as much as possible that we were here, we were an easy solution and we could help people tick these things off. So we did a lot of CPD presentations, education to industry, to approvers, try to get more architects to specify us and more installers to kind of spread our story as well. And you're working from interesting locations, both in London and elsewhere. So tell us about London, Yusuf, and then elsewhere, William. Okay, so our very first real established office was in the HMS President, which was a World War II Corvette, which was located quite near Blackfriars in the River Thames. I remember with the first day we moved in there, it took a while to get used to the fact that it was sort of uh, undulating as the Thames hopper went up and down. So once we were over the seasickness, it was a really, but it was really cheap. great space. It was, cheap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was affordable. There was a um, semi-workshop space sort of below sea level where we could put together some of our more basic parts, assemble some units, and we could ship our equipment out there. So quite flexible, but it worked really well. Richard Lucas is an entrepreneur and a serial investor in Poland who endorses the top three T's to ensure the success of any business team, traction and technology. One of the most memorable experiences for him involves a potential investor and a briefcase. It's a truly astonishing story. People have got their different red lines, but you think, and particularly business tests people's ethics a lot, and it's quite a hard question to ask someone straight up, would you pay a bribe or, you know, what do you think about sexual harassment in the workplace? But you need to be having those questions in the background. Are these people with whom you're not going to be ashamed to be in business with later is a very, very important question. Even the difference between shame and guilt is... Shame is when other people know. Guilt is when you feel bad about being in business with them, even if no one knows how bad they and are. Have you had you had an example where this has happened? Where yeah, I, I, I couldn't possibly talk about not it. the specifics, but no, 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 no. no. I mean, I've been very. Yeah, I mean, okay, there's one example. I didn't go into business with him, but uh, he opened a briefcase, and then there were thirty thousand dollars in cash and a gun. <laughs> <laughs> now, and I really did wonder what happened in my life that I got myself into a, into an office where that could possibly. Um, it wasn't a dodgy pub. It was in my office and you know this was someone who uh, I thought who wanted to land us money <laughs> um, I, I think he thought that this would be a good way of making it clear that you know this would be a, a lo- banking services didn't work back then we couldn't get bank credit so this, yeah. as it were there's a former secret policeman who as far as I could see was loan sharking but you know the fact that I didn't realize that this was going to be part of Ramona Liberoff is a serial investor, as well as possessing a wealth of corporate and startup business experience. In this snippet from her podcast, she describes how she was involved in a startup that was too early for the market. They spent every penny in the bank. That year of Ramona and the team's lives felt intense and kind of like a dog life. The other interesting lesson that I had in this whole thing was the team had been brought together through an executive MBA program at LBS, of which I was not a part. I was brought in as strategy and marketing director kind of afterwards when they realized there was a gap on the team. 
but something that is a student project that makes a lot of sense on paper, even to potential investors, if it's not market tested, the probably the biggest lesson I took from this was twofold. One, if it's not market tested, don't go anywhere near it. And secondly, don't take everything on faith. A number of the people involved in this were disingenuous. They kept other consulting arrangements, but several of us actually put money in and didn't take a salary. So when that came out, that obviously was one of the sort of death knells to the team being willing to put the time and effort in that it would have and taken. And the final, the point of death was when more investment wasn't available, presumably. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. During the due diligence, actually, for the second round of investment, all these things came up about questionable commitment on some of the key members' sort of foundations. But interestingly enough, a couple of them actually went to go on to work in venture capital. So for them, it wasn't too much of a hardship. Right. But it was a lesson that stuck with me, which is don't take everything on faith. And certainly don't assume there is a market unless you have proof there is one. <laughs> right. Well, of course, that's difficult because I invested technology that is a long way from market. Yes, but even then, it's not impossible to chart a path to when it will be available. And then also know that you'll have to remain extremely thrifty until the market emerges. There's nothing wrong with being early as long as you haven't spent every penny in the bank before the market is there. Exactly, yes. So how long was that journey? That was roughly a year, year and a half. Well, quite short then. Quite short. So a single Intense. round. Yeah. But you know what these things are like. A year and a half in startup terms is you yes, know, kind yes. of like a dog life. I aged significantly during that time. <laughs> so after that, did you go back into corporate life? I did, exactly. I started to realize something that's come back to me a few times, which is working for one startup is interesting, but working to help a range of them is fascinating. Jonathan Milner, co-founder of Abcam PLC, is an inspiring entrepreneur and investor who has provided investment and support to over 40 companies and has assisted three technology companies to IPO. A humble beginning as an academic turned entrepreneur who secured money to manufacture antibodies. This walk through walls story highlights the importance of determination and willing to change direction in order to become successful. Abcam is now a multi-billion pound company, so Jonathan has a lot of experience worth listening to. At that point, we were getting into the summer and my contract was ending during the summer months. So Tony allowed me very generously to stay on and he knew that I was working in my spare time on the business with David. And then Tony joined us in the business as well as a director very, very early on. But he didn't leave his role though in the university, did he? Oh, no, no, no. No, no. No, Tony's very much... He's still there, isn't he? Still there, yeah. Yeah. So you'd raised a bit of money, but you said you were getting desperate. So you you wandered around Cambridge with a nice bucket with some antibodies in, I believe. Well, that's right. So we'd raised this money. We were burning that very fast. Foolishly, I spent it too quickly and I learned a lesson. I bought a load of stock not calculating that it would be difficult to sell. Right. It's the first lesson. It was a really hard lesson. lesson there, yes. Fundamental lesson. Yes. So I was stuck with this stock that I couldn't sell and absolutely desperate to get money through the door. Right. So we were within two weeks of going bankrupt. So in desperation, I just thought, well, I've got to get out there. So I grabbed a load of antibodies, put them into an ice bucket, <laughs> and I just went to all the labs that I knew and all the people I knew, and I just literally blagged my way in. We're collecting £10 and, Well, I was just knocking on the door saying, would you like to buy these antibodies? And they didn't want to buy these antibodies, <laughs> but it didn't matter. It absolutely didn't matter, and it absolutely transformed the company. Without me having done this, Abcan would have gone nowhere. The reason for that is because they looked in the ice bucket and they said, well, I don't want that antibody and I don't want that antibody. And bearing in mind, there's thousands and thousands of different products. So trying to predict the antibody you want is very difficult. And then they said, but I'm having trouble making antibodies. Can you make me this antibody? So I just said, yes. So I said, OK, I'll make you the antibody. 
And so I started a contract business, bringing in contract work, where I'd manage the manufacture of these antibodies, outsource the manufacturing to a manufacturer that was much so better than the So you swapped a service model rather than a product model. So the yes. service model yeah. came in, and the service model was the foundation for the cash flow, yes. which got Abcam going, because otherwise it wouldn't have survived. Should we point out to listeners this business is now worth a couple of billion, the market cap? I think last time it was sort of 2.3 billion. Pounds so market pounds cap. Market yeah, so cap. we're talking yeah. here from bankruptcy. Yeah. It's the longest journey. You took 20 years or 19 years? Well, it's 20 years now, yeah. Yeah, this, yes, so you must yes. be having your 20th anniversary this We're year. We're having right? the 20th anniversary this year. What can we say about the serial entrepreneur Andy Phillips, who was instrumental in the formation of the globally dominant Booking.com? Influential? Innovative? Imaginative? In it at the right time? This clip from his hugely illuminating recording highlights how Andy and his co-founder did whatever it took to make Active Hotels a success story. Active Hotels, we had their idea. Why did you pick hotels? Because it just felt like almost anything at that point in the late 90s was going to grow, I guess, on the internet. Yes, it was quite calculating in retrospect. We were looking at what industries were expected to be impacted by the internet. And you know, there were many, many industries being impacted, but the biggest one at the time was probably travel. And then we looked through travel and where people have traditionally or historically made margin in the travel industry is in insurance and in hotels. And we knew very little about either actually, but we decided to pick on hotels. So we, we set up a internet hotel booking business, but with a ridiculous in retrospect amount of research. So I was quite conservative and we did 760 hotel interviews to try and work out exactly what the proposition was. We really wanted to make sure we understood very well what hotels needed, what the problems were, what the challenges were. And you know, I would argue now 760 was ridiculous. And these were face-to-face or on the telephone? We probably did about 150 face-to-face, and we also hired a call centre to do interviews mm. for the remaining. And so that's one side of the platform. You're a specialist in platforms. What about the other side? Did you use your own knowledge, your friends' knowledge? I mean, you need to also attract customers. Yes. We spent less time on that, and probably we should have spent more time on it. If I illustrate why we spent less time, the research sort of indicated that slightly. If you spoke to hotels at the time, everyone knew that the internet was going to or was expected to be a massive impact on the travel industry. But there were some quite big brands already launched then. So lastminute.com, hotels.com, Expedia, those kind of people with many, many millions behind them. But when you spoke to hotels, there was a big problem. If you're going to sell through multiple different channels, you have to make sure your availability and your prices are aligned. Otherwise, you can double sell the room or you can sell it at the wrong price. And if you're having to update your availability across all these different platforms at once, it gives you a real technical challenge. So we actually set up as a kind of hub model where we had a central database where you would maintain your availability and pricing once, you would add your room descriptions, et cetera, and then we distributed it out to whoever might want it. But as a result, we did have interest in what the consumers wanted. When we started at least, we were B2B to C, if you like. So we spent a bit more time talking to websites than we did speaking directly to consumers. That changed as the business progressed. How did you fund those initial weeks and months? Painfully, actually. So we managed to persuade an awful lot of friends to come and do stuff for free. I put some more money in. And it was quite difficult putting more money at the time because I'd just funded an MBA. So we were struggling a bit for cash, but we managed to persuade some people to write the code. We managed to persuade some people to do some marketing for free. And we actually started bluffing things. Like we, we actually hired the premises, et cetera, while we were doing the funding round. But there was quite a lot of pressure to actually close the funding round by the time we actually did it. So there was an air of desperation, certainly, when I was pitching. And how much did you raise in that first round? £405,000, which I know is a rather peculiar amount of money, but the five was because we met one guy who wanted to invest five, and he was a really nice guy, so we let him. But who do you pitch to? 
as with many entrepreneurs, we wanted useful money and we were very specific about what skill sets we want. And then as you gradually get more and more desperate, you want any money. So we got some brilliant investors. We had the chairman of APTA, the Association of British Travel Agents. We had a very successful technology entrepreneurs there. We had some very good marketing people, marketing directors for Pepsi, for example, invested in us. And then as we got slightly more in need of money, and also because of the personal chemistry, we took money from Britain's largest potato farmer, for example, and the BBC correspondent for Iran, and, um, <laughs> which are difficult to justify operationally, but actually they were nice people. Thank you for supporting our mission to share people's experiences and anecdotes. These stories will help entrepreneurs and investors create more successful startups. You can find all our podcasts on our website, investedinvestor.com, as well as all major podcast platforms. Our recently released book, The Invested Investor, The New Rules for Startups, Scale-Ups and Angel Investing is available on Amazon and includes a wealth of knowledge from entrepreneurs and investors from all over the world. Happy holidays from the Invested Investor team. <laughs>